Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you? We are in February. Are you a fan of February? Because I'm not. Well, we get a week off school for half term. So <laughs> that's true. You know, I'm, I'm a fan of a week off school. And it's short, so it's over fast, and we're into March and spring and part of New Year and all the nice things. So February always feels like a bit of a stopgap for me. I'd kind of, we're still kind of hunkering down, or what do you say in Scotland? Currying in <laughs> or down? In. Still feels like we're still doing that, which is great for our theme this month, which is recipe. So we'd love to hear about you. Your recipes, your family recipes, a recipe for all sorts of things, not even just cooking. But as you all probably know by now, Claire and I are big fans of recipes, recipe books, recipes of all kinds. I would say generally we own far too many books between us, but the recipe book collection certainly tips into the ridiculous sometimes. I love nothing more though than reading a recipe book. I know, I have them by my bedside as like, not really soporific material, it's not like war and peace, it's just like a lovely way to sort of fall asleep thinking about, I don't know, pickling lemons or cultural ones that to be honest, sometimes I just, I know I'm not going to make it, but I'm just curious. It's almost like reading a good story about another place. And then lots of Persian ones that go at recipes in particular ways and I think, oh, my aunties wouldn't like that. But then if you got family recipe books, did you get ones handed down to you as well? Yeah, I mean, I've got one that my mum wrote that's got you know little clippings of newspapers and her handwriting in and very yellow sellotape where she's stuck something in and little additions and to things that she you know make with almond flour instead of wheat flour by doing this and also lots of blobs of indescribable unidentifiable things on the pages which always make me smile you know we had one too that was the betty crocker cookbook and it was the same it was like the the most used pages for snickerdoodles and chocolate chip cookies and things and then to my horror i went back one year and my mum had bought a new one which was the same one and it was like almost a binder a three ring binder but it wasn't the same because it wasn't our one and she said oh it was just getting tatty so i just got a new one i was horrified that was not the point you know the point was to have the old one with all the bits and pieces in it and i do i also have recipes written in my granny's handwriting and my great granny's handwriting my great granny was a great baker she died when i was four but she's notorious for being a poet and a baker and i like to think i got at least one of those you can all decide which one uh, from her and then i was just thinking recipes is fun in writing as well. I hope that some of our groups will get a chance to write all kinds of different recipes, not just for cooking, but like, you know, a recipe for laughter, or a recipe for a good family day out, or a recipe for fill in the blank. We'd love to hear your recipes for all kinds of things, not just food. So our story this month is by Britta Benson, Dinner Plate Identities, and I really loved this story. It made me smile. And our poem is A Tree of Frozen Songbirds by Pascal Petit. So thank you to Pascal and her publishers, of course, for letting us use this on the podcast today. Yeah, shall we crack into the story and see? Shall I start? Yeah, please. Dinner Plate Identities by Britta Benson. This is the story of how my stubborn German stomach became an Italian-Indian sun-kissed resident of Scotland. I'm an adventurer, a rather complicated, open-minded soul with more layers than phyllo pastry and deeper fillings than the most luxurious mince pie. I'm not quite sure how this happened. The odds must have been nil. So, of course, there was simply no other way. 
This is the story of the most beautiful digestive manifestation. My grand theory of everything, brought to you in a carefully prepared five-course meal of a thousand words, or thereabouts. Bon appétit. First, the hors d'oeuvre. This is not just an amuse-bouche. The starter sets the tone. My mother came from a small place in central Germany. Her family had lived there since the day before the beginning of time. Mum could slice and dice an onion with the precision of a neurosurgeon. She always held a knife in her silky smooth hand, a silver, scalpel-thin murder weapon, which she yielded in her kitchen like an executioner. Nobody dared to come near her when she was at work. Mum prepared the traditional recipes from her own mother's dog-eared, well-thumbed and warped cookbook. A wartime monstrosity. The book, to be sure, not my gran, printed on paper so coarse it remained indestructible, practically still a tree and forever growing. I remember Mum sellotaped little notes full of new tips and tricks between the old jaundiced pages of the bulging, bursting book, this yeasted dough of a never-expanding universe, quietly fermenting. The original entries came in three flavours. First, the standard recipe. Second, a compromise, in case you were short of a few things. Third, a prayer. Nothing but a wish list full of ersatz. Careful instructions on how to provide for a family when the rations just wouldn't stretch. Cakes made without eggs, no butter or flour. Simply scoop up some sawdust from the shed floor, stir in a sprigglet of hope, add a sprinkle of goodwill, and then bake the lumpy mixture with the gentle heat of trust. An act of faith. This will teach you all you'll ever need to know, Mum said. As a child, I was convinced the book covered alchemy and philosophy, as well as slightly aspirational mock meat Sunday roasts. I learned a core skill from my ancestors, how to make something out of nothing, how to keep going when you want to give up, but must carry on for the sake of others. Time to bring in a light entree to complement the first course. My dad came from the small village next to Mum's insignificant hometown. He, the blunt son of a baker, represented the complete opposite to her sharp pointiness. Dad taught everything through the medium of bread. Don't be scared to get your hands dirty, he said. A loaf can't be made by spectators. Also, never hurry, my dear. Bread demands patience, sourdough and dry. Wheat, in his view, was for weaklings, the quick and easy way out. Once you do understand bread and the need to wait, then life will be easy. This all made sense. There was something missing, though. Shall we stop there for a minute? Yeah, I love this so far. I love the kind of relationship between people and the way they handle food. Yeah, and that book, it just sounds exactly like the one I have that was my mum's with this sort of 
the yellow cellar tape and the, the sort of little tips and tricks that uh, she learned as she made the recipes. I love the idea, particularly in this story, you know, I love the, the vision of the mum, you know, being strong with a knife and, you know, all these little tricks. And, and, and I love the idea of cooking as a metaphor for something, you know, and it dawned on me the other day, I don't know if I said to you when I was cooking, maybe the reason I like cooking so much is it just makes you slow down. You know, you, you just can't rush caramelizing onions or you just can't rush. There are stews where you throw everything in the pot. And I know you and I have a favorite brisket recipe like that. We throw everything in and turn it on, but often it's not something you can rush. And I think maybe that helps me because I'm a person who's always trying to do 27 things at once. But cooking's not like that. You just can't. And I wondered if that's maybe one of the reasons I've always enjoyed it so much because it's it's just one of those things you can't hurry up really, you know, and you can't do too many other things when you're chopping an onion. You know, it's, it's impossible to be sorting something else out while you're chopping an onion. So it feels almost like kind of mindfulness or, you know, there's there's a real pace and a slowness to it, which is really beautiful. I think there's also something in the idea of I very, very rarely am cooking just for myself. So when I'm cooking, I'm generally either cooking to share it with friends or in a family setting. You know, I might make the, the odd cheese sandwich for my lunch, but generally when I'm, I'm investing time and energy, it's for other people. And I really love putting down a plate of food and someone tasting it and really enjoying it. So I think there's something in, in the idea of sort of expressing your love or your, your care for someone through food, through preparing food for them that you know is healthy and nutritious and all that sort of jazz. And I love that I think you used the word metaphor before between you know, cooking and people. And I love the mum's pointiness, as I think it's described. And then the dad, he almost feels a bit doughy and soft at the edges and slower paced in that description of the bread. Yeah, and blunt, you know, and I always think of it being blunt is not a good thing, but it doesn't strike me as a bad thing here. And thinking wheat, which I think of as quite a heavy thing, you know, weaklings, easy. And you know, I have a real fancy, or I did, you know, for baking bread. Love baking bread, but it is again that thing you can't rush. You're not, there's something not in control about it. You know, sometimes it rises and sometimes it doesn't. And the conditions can be the same, the ingredients are the same, and yet there's something that makes it not rise. And there's something magical about that, I think, which I really liked. Too. So that idea that once you kind of, what, that, that line about once you understand the need to wait, life will be easy. For me, it's about, you know, understanding the fact that you're just not in control. You can do the best you can. You know, you can work your hardest, you can set things up, and but sometimes things just don't go your way or things don't go as you expect. And understanding that percentage of, for lack of a better word, magic or fate or whatever, once you get that, it would really help in life to not to be reminded that we're not entirely in control. And that idea of, you know, that you get with bread where you just have to wait till it's proved. You know, you just have to wait. You can, you can lift the, t the tea towel off it as many times as you like, but until it's doubled in size... You just have to wait to put it in the oven. What we haven't talked about is the form of the story. I love the way, she, you know, she set out the things in courses. So I'm curious as to what we've only had the amuse-bouche and the um, light entree to start. So I wonder what's coming next. Do you want to read on? Yeah. Course number three, enter the main meal, my own choices. Sometimes we find all we need in the seeds planted long before we were born. Sometimes we have to venture, seek out more and hope for chance encounters, travels and discoveries. The serendipity of focaccia, ciabatta, naan and pita bread, 
They sneaked into my life from the sidelines to prove that wheat was indeed not just for weaklings. On my first journey to Florence on an art history field trip, I instantly recognized heaven. Not so much in the tricolore marble of the Duomo, but in the red, white, and green of tomatoes, mozzarella, and basil leaves. Italy felt like a home I just hadn't met before, a perfect match. India was even more accommodating and came to me on a rainy evening in a small family-run restaurant around the corner from where I was staying at the time. Mr. Singh introduced me to the pleasures of the subcontinent. I tasted the forbidden fruit of curiosity and the most marvelous fairy dust of faraway spices. My tongue loved the tickle of ginger and turmeric at the very first contact. Apparently, my heart was in desperate need of a curry and chickpeas made my soul smiles with glee and ghee. Course number four, bring out the cheese and nibbles. During my student stint in France, my stomach got lined with unspeakably stinky yet divinely delicious cheeses. Unsightly, odd-shaped creations placed on a wheat fest of baguettes. Who knew paradise had a vein of blue mold running right through it? When I moved to Scotland 20 years ago, I quickly learned that anything can and will be fried, and that fluorescent orange is not just the color of corrosive drain pipe cleaner, but also the signature tinge of a popular fizzy juice people gulp, guzzle, and would you believe it, survive. Food works in miraculous ways. My wartime Germany-inspired, eternally hopeful Indian-Italian stomach-heart combo with a penchant for smelly French brie fell in love with my Scottish husband, haggis, neeps and tatties, cranachan, and all things oat. As for the brightly colored carbonated soft drink, well, let's not go there. Maybe in another life. I've reached course number five, the inevitable dessert trolley. Apfelkuchen, crumbles and custard, gelato and tiramisu, always. Turns out my belly has become a true citizen of the world over the years, a cosmopolitan at home in many cultures, a polyglot, a mange too. No prejudice, no pride, simply a philosopher happy to observe and learn with greatest gusto. My mum used to stick little notes into her mother's old cookbook. I keep adding to our family recipe collection, leave my trace for the next generation. I think I understand now why the stomach sits so close to the heart. Food is fun, identity both given and chosen, a great teacher, an expression of time, past, present and future, life and love manifested. Let's savor it properly for all that it's worth. After dinner mint, anyone? I love that idea that the stomach sits very close to the heart for a reason. It's a beautiful line. It is a gorgeous and there's lots of lovely little lines and phrases in this one. My tongue loved the tickle of ginger and turmeric. And I love the idea that you can, you know, see a place through its food. And I think you can, you know, as someone who obviously loves food, if you can't go to a place, and I think increasingly it'll be harder and harder for us to visit all these places for all kinds of reasons. You know, there's something about the preparation of 
ingredients that are common to an area. If you think of a curry and represents probably both the place that it originally hailed from and also the alterations on the way. It feels almost like um, a genetic makeup. I love that idea that, you know, and that there are cultures that I haven't begun to explore yet. Um, all kinds of foods and places that I'm, I probably will never get to, but I'd love to learn more about. Love as well, discovering in a new place unexpected food influences. So I remember uh, being in Amsterdam, you know, having very strong African influences in the food in the particular restaurant that we were in. And it was almost like a tally table, you know, with all the little tiny pots of different food to eat quite strongly spiced which I kind of hadn't expected at all but of course if you think of the history of the country it makes perfect sense. I think we can increasingly do that even times have changed in the last 15 years you can get really reasonable Persian ingredients in your local supermarket. I can't remember whether it was Tesco or one of the others that I went around the other day and there were Persian dried limes and I was thinking lord you know 10 years ago I had to have my mother send them from America or find them in London. But, you know, suddenly our access to these sorts of things is just greater. So, and there's, you know, there's some lovely magazines that I used to subscribe to. And I think I subscribed to last year again for just for joy, where it takes you to a very small place within a culture and tells you how they might do something. But I love the idea that not just are we eating French food or Kenyan food, but we're eating from a very specific time and place in those cultures as well. So Persian New Year is a great example. You know, there's particular dishes that are eaten in the same way that there might be, you know, things you eat on Burns Night here or whatever. But I think we have access to all of that in a way we might not have even 20 years ago. I remember being, um, it must have been at primary school, when really the only pasta that you could get was macaroni, for making macaroni cheese, and sometimes sheets of lasagna if you were having a particularly exotic meal. But I remember going down to London to stay with my aunt and her serving farfalle, the, the little bow pasta, with pesto. And I'd never tasted pesto before, I don't think I wouldn't have had basil in any form and I remember just being absolutely astonished by the taste of it being so different from anything I'd ever encountered and thinking I was just the most sophisticated person to be sitting eating this plate of farfalle and pesto (laughs) and now you know we wouldn't blink that's thought of as a very simple quick supper yeah, it was a fast kid supper if things were if things were pushed. Yeah, and I remember being making it as a student. Um, so it's probably more accessible in America. But the basil was so expensive. I had to split the bunch with my girlfriend Shannon because we couldn't afford the five dollars or whatever it was, which was quite a lot of money to a student. 25 years ago, you know, it's the equivalent of 20 pounds, I would guess now. So we would split it and then really eke it out because it was too dear, you know, freeze it in ice cube trays and things. So it's funny to think now that you could buy a jar of it in any supermarket, you know, even your local tiny one will have three different kinds of it. So I think the world's getting wider in that way. Um, And I love that. I do. But I also really hope that it doesn't mean that those small traditions of the particular place change because, you know, I worry that if you go to France and get Spanish food and you go to Spain and get Italian and Iranian and that if it all blends that in a hundred years, we won't have that proper, you know, epiphany cake from France or whatever it is, you know, I, I want to make sure we still get to enjoy those in some kind of almost pure way. I was just about to say, so you want your cake and you want to eat it. <laughs> you want, yes. you want a bit of fusion, but not too much fusion. I don't think I'm a fan of fusion now that we, we're not talking about recipes here, but you know, I don't think I'm a fan of fusion really. I think I like things to be 
proper. I prefer to eat Indian and Italian and Thai and Persian all in the same week, but I, w- I don't want to make them all in one meal, funnily enough. Oh, that's a controversial thing to say. You guys should let us know if you your best fusion meals to try and convince us away from that kind of purest type of cooking. So, shall we see what the poem adds to this? Yeah, to the mix, as it were. Will I read it? Yes, please. A tray of frozen songbirds. For our last meal together... My father takes out of the freezer a tray of frozen songbirds. He saved them up, these delicacies with ice crystals in their beaks, wings stuck to rib cages. There are skylarks, blackbirds, doves. He tells me how some were plucked while still alive, about the mist net at dawn how one nightingale was thrust into a sack of discarded heads and cried. Then the poacher licked the sticky lime from its plumes tenderly before slitting its throat. He pours champagne as if it's the river of life. We eat like two drunks woken from dreams of flying, me on his lap, singing the song I've just learnt at school. Alouette, gentille Alouette, Alouette, je te plumerai. Okay, I'm going to stick my neck out and say right off the bat, I don't actually think they're eating songbirds. I decided I was going to take that view regardless of whether they were or not, because it's just too horrible <laughs> to think about. Because yeah. there is obviously a tradition in France of catching and eating songbirds. Yeah, for me, I mean, and I'm. it will be interesting to know whether it's true or not but for me you know it's about the rarity of songbirds you know and that that kind of the recipe for our last meal together you know how something is stopping singing something is going out and equally the idea of it being them being frozen and as you're somehow trying to keep something you know trying to salvage or save or put something in the deep freeze to hold on to for later there's something in the combination of songbirds and them not singing and the kind of preservation instinct here, which I really loved. And I think as well that first line just it kept flicking into my brain the whole way through for our last meal together and wondering why it was their last meal. You know, was, was someone ill? Was was one of them going away? Were, was they, were they both going in different directions? Why would there be a last meal that you would know about? Yeah, how would you know it was going to be your last meal? And so, and then what would your last meal be if you knew what it was going to be? Exactly. You know, that's such an awful and wonderful thing to kind of think about. And again, you know, the idea that you pull out of the freezer these rare and beautiful things, they're almost like memories to me, you know, that you... For example, I've got a freezer full of blackberries or brambles and, you know, they're picked at different times and within the season, but, you know, I picked some and then I picked some more and then I picked some more and I just kept adding them to the freezer. And it's almost like these are things, memories that have been stuck into the deep freeze and pulled out, you know, for this last meal. Let's talk about the, that time when, and that other time when, you know, almost like a spread of the most beautiful things were the most funny things and the most superlative things that happened. There's also that question of the preparation for a last meal, the knowing that there will be a last meal and having put away those things carefully, anticipating that this would come, sends shivers up my spine. 
Well, if you think about how you prepare for a holiday meal, for example, for months before Christmas season, I'll be buying tins of panettone and chocolates and because I don't want to buy them all in one week, apart from anything, it's too hard on the bank balance. But, you know, and I'll be hiding them away or putting them somewhere, kind of hoarding up a stash of things to celebrate with. And so it feels like you say something like that has happened here. It's that kind of a kind of preparation. And, you know, you wouldn't be able to go out and catch, assuming you were actually eating songbirds. You would have to go and catch all of them in the one day, so you would have to hoard them up in some way, knowing there would be a time. But as you say, there is a real shiver about preparing in that way, which is totally different than the story. You know, I think it, it, it is that kind of relationship with a parent and how you prepare for something. But it couldn't be more different in the sense that it, it feels about this one meal, this last, the idea that it's their last one too. And pouring champagne as if it's the river of life. Of course you would have champagne if you knew it was going to be your last meal or your last meal together with your child. But why are you telling these horrible stories? Why are you not just making sure it's the positive memories that are coming back and not the nightingale being thrust into a sack of heads and the birds being plucked alive? You know, I mean, even even if they are not actually eating songbirds and these are sort of metaphors there's a cruelty to it or i feel like i'm not really reading the poem literally for me it's about how some of the stories are stopped halfway halfway or kind of cut off mid story or you know how when you might have a family meal and you'll be telling do you remember the time when so and so did such and such or and so kind of some of them some of the stories for me are about or stop halfway or don't end well or and others are okay you know they kind of go all the way through so for me it's more about looking back and explaining how each thing even though it has ended up in the box of memories or deeply frozen each one slightly different and it got there a different way and ends at a different point point in that trajectory but i'm working very hard not to try and think about eating songbirds here amantine it for me it's just it's just sinister even taking that interpretation of stories half told and, you know, I think there's an element of thinking about the way you tell the story, your, your recollection of a family story or something that happened to both of you isn't going to be the same as the other person who also experienced it. There is an underlying darkness, I think, that for me weaves through this. I thought of it as like saving up your treasures, you know, and then, and maybe as you say, even if they are eating the songbirds, it's it's culturally okay to do that. But the thing that worries me is that assuming she, we, or she is her, she's quite young, you know, me on his lap singing a song. And so then I suddenly think, well, that's the memory left with this child. Is he, you know, not just eating a tray of songbirds of whose song have been cut short, hearing the truth behind that as well. You know, imagine if you had to hear the story of every animal you ate. We would probably all be vegetarians, and and many of us are for that reason. But, you know, for a child, they really don't want to hear about the animal that they're eating, generally. So that feels like it's unnecessarily traumatic in some way. And yet, you know, they eat like two drunks woken from dreams of flying as if they've come back down to earth and can't believe their luck, you know, that kind of, it feels quite celebratory, but what's worrying to me is it feels, that part of it feels celebratory. But as you say, maybe when, as an adult, you look back, there are real questions there about why your father would tell you that one was plucked alive or, you know, one had its throat. So why, why would you be told that? And maybe as a parent, you know, you're lasting, if you know it's a last time you're going to see a child, it's because 
you tell them these things because you want them to know the truth. You want them to understand that behind every bird on the table is a story, you know, that's not pretty. And that that's part of life is coming to terms with, you know, the consequences of our choices, I guess, uh, um, not just to eat, to eat animals, but also everything, right, has a consequence or has something that's led it to that point. So maybe that's a kind of wisdom that's being passed on, but it feels quite harsh for a little girl on her father's lap. And I think it's only at the very end that we get the sense of the age of the we or I, because right the way through until that point, I thought it was someone much older, you know, yeah, an adult, almost an, an, an equal. And I think it is an adult speaking or, you know, writing. The voice is definitely an adult's voice, but remembering being a child. But then, you know, when you look at the short story, for example, that we were reading, there's lots of, mem you know, thought about love and learning to wait and that kind of moral is the wrong word, but wisdom is maybe the right one being passed down. And so there's, there feels like there is some kind of wisdom being passed down here, whether it's appropriate, I don't know, I'd probably, I would say not for a young child, but or maybe it's just the adult recognizing the wisdom, but it feels a bit cruel, actually. Yeah, or maybe it, there's that element of only having one more opportunity to share these ideas. And maybe if you had the choice or the time, you might not choose to do it at that point, but this is your last meal and your last chance. So you are sharing things that you feel are important to pass on. Yeah, I mean, and some of it feels like a good warning, you know, the idea that some people who are kind, who might be the kind of person who licks the sticky lime from your plumes tenderly is also the one who might slit your throat, you know, that kind of real warning of not to trust people that appear one way or how some people suffer and, and how maybe you can't see from the birds which ones were plucked alive, you know, that's another possible kind of bit of wisdom in there that you don't actually see what people have experienced or animals have experienced or whatever, you know, the ex we don't wear experience on our outsides very much. So there's a lot you could read into it, you know, that a father might be trying to pass down through this metaphor of birds. And perhaps, as I say, in writing it, I don't know if it's autobiographical or at all, you know, it's always the question with poetry, we always assume poems are about the poet or their experiences and, and they, don't, they don't, they're often not. But, you know, assuming that it is, maybe it's the poet just recognizing that as an adult, that there was something there. You know, she thought there was just a young girl having dinner, a perfectly reasonable dinner with her dad and being told the kind of macabre story behind it. I don't know. But I do like it very much. I do feel like there is some kind of wisdom being passed down through this ritual of eating. It's a lot harder to come to grips with than the, the courses and the, the fiction, but I but I like it just as much. It, it leaves quite a lot to the imagination to try and decide what was happening there. And it's lovely to read out loud, you know, it feels that the language and the word choice and the sounds, the ice crystals and beaks, sticky limes and things feel good in your mouth, you know, when you're reading it aloud. Yeah, they really do. So thank you, Pascal, for that poem. And I would say we'd love to know more about it, but, we, but the way open work works is we never do. We have to decide for ourselves. So thank you for giving us that, that option and those choices to make in this poem. I think that's all from us today. We should say, have a look at the program that should be out from Stanza, which is the poetry festival happening in St. Andrews from the 9th to the 12th of March. Open Book will be having a workshop there, but there's lots of other beautiful readings and workshops and things to attend online and in person right across that weekend. So we hope to see you there as well. 
Thanks very much for having us in your ears again and we look forward to being with you again next month with another story and a poem that we get to read and discuss. 